welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stansel. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Welcome back to the FarmVids podcast for our fourth episode in the nitrogen management technology series and our 35th episode of the FarmVids podcast. Capturing soil mineralization and early season nitrogen losses is often the missing piece of nitrogen management decisions that farmers have to make. And so using responsive nitrogen management techniques such as active crop canopy sensors, as described in this episode, can help fill this gap. Yeah, so our guest for this episode is Dr. Jim Shepherds, an emeritus professor in agronomy at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, who has spent a career working with sensor-based nitrogen management through the USDA ARS. Jim helped to develop the sufficiency index concept, which contributed to the development of active crop canopy sensors offered commercially today. This episode provides a really good broad orientation to sensor-based nitrogen management, and it'll set up our next few episodes. So let's dive right into our interview with Jim. I'm a farm boy from Platte River Valley out between Kearney and Grand Island. Uh, grew up with 4-H and then FFA and came off to the university in, in agronomy and uh, member of agronomy club and those kind of things. But on the farm, we grew up with Corn, alfalfa, soybeans, a few cattle, a few pigs, all that kind of stuff. So I got exposed to lots and lots of farming activities, and I still have that in my blood, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, can you tell us a little bit about your career and kind of how you got into oh. the nitrogen management oh. area that we're focusing on today? When I've always been intrigued by, by fertilizers because we would see how the crops responded to fertilizer. And one of the teachers back in, a, in agronomy, he said, the soil is a lousy place to store nitrogen. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. And and he was just right. And so when I went off to, to graduate school at Illinois, that got me, I'll say, in, in a position, had some plant physiology and things like that. I taught soil physics at the University of Georgia for two years and did irrigation research with corn. Hmm. So in 1975, the USDA job opened up here in, in Nebraska, and I was solicited to come here. But at that time, they were just starting to have problems with nitrate in the groundwater of the Platte River Valley. Mm-hmm. And as we talked to farmers and said, you know, you guys, you're going to have problems here. And, and old Professor Olson, who told us about a lousy place to store nitrogen, he said, you boys are going to have trouble out here if you keep putting on this much fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so as we talked to the farmers about this, they said, well, if you want us to cut back on the amount of fertilizer we put on, you're going to have to find a way to identify the problem before it reduces yield. And then you have to find a way for us to fix the problem. Right. And, and so that sent me back to Illinois on a sabbatical leave to talk to the plant physiology people. Hmm. And, and the uh, professor Hageman, he says, you're just going to have to measure chlorophyll. That's the driving factor. Sure. And he said, if you want to measure nitrogen, that's okay, but be careful because corn plants have luxury consumption. And so you never know how much extra is sitting around there in the corn plant. And you don't want to become up short, sure. Mm-hmm. But you'd also like to know when you're at the peak, right? And if you monitor chlorophyll, you're going to be able to uh, associate that with nitrogen. So that that's what got us into this. So that's what we really want to focus on today is that sensor-based nitrogen management. But before we kind of get into that, can you talk about some of the other methods to determine nitrogen mm-hmm. rates? So such as models or yield goal-based methods. Why is this 
sensor base so different and why is that important? We need to go back just a little bit from, yeah. from our uh, guidance from Illinois. He said, you're going to have to measure chlorophyll. And at that time, the instrumentation was not there to do this conveniently. And so we made some leaf punches mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to punch little holes in the leaves. We would send one off for chlorophyll, one off for nitrogen analysis. Mm -hmm. And after about three years of this, we had a, a stack of, of yield response functions. Sure. And we look at them and you'd say, well, the shape is about the same, but how do we make sense of this? And this is where we came up with the, I'll say the uh, sufficiency index concept of laying one graph over the other one and shifting them around to sure. say, oh, there is something here. And it, it's all tied to that nitrogen rich or the high nitrogen rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in 1990, chlorophyll meters came onto the market from Minolta. And we had a large water project at the time. So that's how we started using this efficiency index to monitor the crop and schedule fertigation. Sure. But that's a good research tool, but it's not very good for practical purposes <laughs> on the farmer's field. Right, right. And so I told Tracy Blackburn, our graduate student, I said, what we need is a mobile version of the chlorophyll meter. Sure. And so he went to work bothering people in all the different departments who had some kind of a sensor. And that's what led us to Lycor, who built us some preliminary sensors. Sure. And, and then Kyle Holland, he would watch us. And he said, you guys are always out there calibrating these things to a spectral on panel, something that is known reflectance. Mm -hmm. He says, that's a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and he said, I can build you an active sensor. Okay, we're ready. We're ready. <laughs> Go to it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, the birth of uh, the crop circle sensors hmm. just out of the the old chlorophyll meters so what is the information that these chlorophyll meters are really capturing that allows you to measure chlorophyll like what sort of wavelengths and, and what are we looking at there what the chlorophyll meter is is doing i'll tell you first it's basically a potential photosynthesis meter in that it generates extra red light okay and it says to the, the plant leaf it says use as much as you want but what you can't use i'm going to measure sure and, and so it, it cranks the leaf up to saying, do everything you possibly can. Yeah. And, and whatever's left over, I'm going to measure it. And, and we're going to use that to quantify how much uh, photosynthesis is possible. Mm -hmm. But crop production and that photosynthesis is impacted by lots of other things, such as water stress. So can you explain a little bit of how you're differentiating that to nitrogen stress? Yeah. Water stress comes first. And, and what we found is that if you, well, it's, as a plant grows, it gets bigger and bigger and the sensors are monitoring and measuring near infrared reflectance. Plants can't use that wave band. Sure. And we can't see it. Mm -hmm. Sure. But insects can. So that's where they know to go mm. um, harvest, chew on leaves, that sort of thing. Mm. Huh. But the more vegetation you have out there, the more reflectance you get with near infrared light. Sure. And so that's one of the components. The other one is the chlorophyll. So if you have lots of chlorophyll, it's going to use as much red light as it can. Yep. And so there will not be as much red light reflected. So sure. it's one's up, NIR's up, uh, red reflectance is down. And so it becomes a very sensitive measure of crop vigor. Sure. And is that where the NDVI then and some of these other vegetation yes. indices come from? NDVI was really developed for forestry purposes to develop and understand how much vegetation is in a forest. Sure. Hmm. But it, it works also for many other crops. Yeah. 
And so we've always heard, I guess, on our end that the NDVI tends to, to saturate, right? So if you've got a lot of crop canopy out there, a lot of biomass, then you really don't have any red uh, reflectance. And so your measurement basically always becomes close to close to one. And so the NDRE, I guess, is an improvement on that yes. particular measurement. As soon as the canopy closes on corn, NDVI becomes a random number generator in that there, there's shadows and, and all kinds of other things going on there. But if you switch to a, another wave band that doesn't go to a very low levels, right. it, it can be a constant level like a near infrared reflectant or like a red edge reflectance. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change much. And many people say, well, red edge is more sensitive. That wave band itself is not. It, it's very stable. Sure. And it, it has about the same reflectance as bare soil. Right. Hmm. But in combination, the NDRE wave band or, or vegetation index is considerably more uh, sensitive than NDVI, sure. except at the very low levels where you still see some soil. Sure. Hmm. Which I guess why you have to get rid of soil pixels when yep. you're actually <laughs> going to use imagery to uh, <laughs> yep. do NDRE. That's interesting. And then you guys have also taken that one step further to uh, for nitrogen recommendations with a nitrogen hive nitrogen reference strip or a virtual reference to help make sure that you're detecting nitrogen stress. Can you yeah. describe that a little bit for our listeners? The the high nitrogen strip idea goes back to the plot studies we had with the, the uh, leaf punches and tissue testing. Um, we, we said, if you have a, a nitrogen rate that's above what you need, that's a, essentially a high nitrogen strip in the <laughs> field. Sure. Um, that, that works well, but what we found over time is that there are some situations, uh, North Dakota, we found it in Missouri, where if you put on too much nitrogen, create that nitrogen strip, the, the plants appear to be stunted. Hmm. And, and what's happening here is that sulfur is also leachable, mm -hmm. just like nitrate. And so in those situations, the nitrogen to sulfur ratio in the plant was out of balance. Hmm. Sure. And so, um, that's why we say you got to be careful of a high nitrogen strip. Now, the other part of the story is that in Europe, they're not allowed to, to over fertilize. They usually fertilize their wheat three or four times hmm. because if you give it too much at once, it's likely to lodge and go down. Sure. So they spoon feed their wheat several times in the year and they're not allowed to over fertilize. So no nitrogen, no high nitrogen strips. And so this is where Kyle Holland came up with the idea of the virtual strip because early in the season when you're sensing that plant doesn't need the full dose of nitrogen right it can get by with a whole lot less and be better for it to boot so mm -hmm. sure absolutely and so you know we know from working in this space that the sufficiency index comes from basically measuring that reflectance value right or that yeah, that, that vegetation correct. index value yes. within the high nitrogen and then comparing it to some other area in the crop you know just maybe normal crop areas receive a normal nitrogen rate yes. to measure the sufficiency at those locations now so that's our sufficiency index. There's also a response index, right? That was come up with at Oklahoma State. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences in these methods? Well, it, <laughs> it turns out the sufficiency index concept is patented. Okay. It was developed as part of the activities with LICOR. Okay. And since it was, I'll say my idea, they had to turn the patent over to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Huh. And, and because it was patented, um, people could not use it for commercial purposes. Research was fine, but commercial was forbidden. Sure. And the Oklahoma people didn't want to get caught up legally. Hmm. And so what they did, they, they flipped it over, inverted it, uh -huh. and said, well, the, the farmers find it easier to understand how much more they could gain rather than how much short you are. 
how much deficient you are. Sure. We'd like to talk about how much more we can gain. Yeah. Now, the, the other deal is that the denominator of the sufficiency index is always 100%. That's right. the enrich. Right. So you have a nice linear relationship. The sufficiency or the response index has got a denominator that's floating around. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and so it's not a, a nice linear relationship. Sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so it's still using kind of that enrich concept, but it's just flipped the, the ratio where the reflectance from that enrich is now in the numerator. That's correct. That's all it is. Huh. But there's also some where you have like a zero nitrogen strip, right? Where you put no nitrogen and then you're no. using that. Um, we mostly do that to understand mineralization. Mm-hmm. That one of the hardest things to identify and, and quantify is, is mineralization, not only the amount, but when it becomes available relative to that growing plant mm-hmm. and how much residue you've incorporated in the soil in the previous crop. Yeah. So it, it's really helpful to have a, a check strip, a, a zero nitrogen out there. Sure. Farmers don't like it, <laughs> at least if it's a very big area. Mm-hmm. Right. For good reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they put their hand out and say, put some money in there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of getting to that, right? We've brought up mineralization now. That's really the advantage of sensors versus a lot of other yeah. forms of nitrogen management is that they're in real time capturing how that nitrogen mineralization is affecting the plant. Is, am, am I correct oh, in saying that? You're, you're correct. That um, the, the plant is a really good biological indicator of nitrogen supply, be it from fertilizer, nitrate in the water, whatever. Sure. And so the plant's got roots out there that are sensing what's available to it. And by uh, using the plant, we at least have a good indication of what's been available up to that point. Now, as you look down the road further, you you sort of have to say, well, we would expect mineralization to continue throughout the rest of the growing season, provided you have water. Right. Water comes first. <laughs> water and temperature are pretty much your prerequisites for that, right? And, and actually, temperature is really important early in the spring when the soils are warming up. Uh-huh. If, if you have a warm spring, Mineralization is going to be ahead of schedule, okay, and and so that plant's going to be have access to more nitrogen. Sure. And if you monitor the crop, you say, well, I've got plenty of nitrogen out here, when in fact it's really a temperature response. Sure. And and that's why it's important not to get in the field too early with this sensing. Sure. That's interesting. It is. So now you have the crop's current status measurement. How are you converting that into a nitrogen recommendation rate? So can you talk about that algorithm a little bit and how that works? Certainly. Um, There's really two approaches to this. And here in Nebraska, uh, my my friend who designed the sensors, Kyle Holland, he's quite accomplished with mathematics. And he would hear us talk about nitrogen response functions, quadratic or quadratic plateau response functions. Mm -hmm. And he must have sat around for a long time thinking about these things, but he said, you know, there's a way to tear that thing apart, understand what's going on. And so that's what he did. That paper that we published, Mm -hmm. he was the mathematics behind it. And I tell people, my job was to keep him honest (laughs) (laughs) and make sure that we have all the components in there that are going to be important to a farmer. Sure. And the last one we put in there was that management zone factor because we, we knew that this model wouldn't be, and wouldn't contain everything. Sure. And and management zone is is essentially mineralization, soil type, water holding capacity, things that you can't expect that sensor to look down the road three months or two months and say, this is what's going to happen. Sure. Mm-hmm. But the farmer, he could put that in there as a coefficient and, and adjust the rate accordingly. Sure. 
And so when we're thinking about this algorithm, which we we refer to as the Holland Shepherd algorithm, right? <laughs> okay. yep. yeah. So if we're thinking about this algorithm, it's taking in the SI that that comes in, and then the farmer set parameters with such as that management zone factor, and then kind of a, an optimal nitrogen rate for that field. Yeah. And what what are some of the other things that go into that algorithm? Well, there's there's a, a term in there that it's important to know when you're sampling with a sensor because if you sample at V8 versus V12, that plant has already taken up more nitrogen at V12. And so you don't want it making the same recommendation at V8 as it does at V12. <laughs> right. You need yeah. to correct for that. Sure. So, so that's one of the things that's, that's taken into account. The, the other thing I should, not to sell short, the other kind of algorithms, the Oklahoma algorithm was developed for wheat. Mm -hmm. And they're sensing early in the year to determine how much winter kill they had and what the yield potential is gonna be. So, so their sure. idea was, let's predict yield, determine how much extra nitrogen we're going to need to bring that yield up. Right. And, and so they're back calculating. It's a mass balance approach. Sure. But what they're not doing is taking into account the fact that not only do you want to bring up the, the grain, the, the bushels. Right. But you got to grow that plant first. Sure. And, and they weren't putting that in to their equation. So they've tried to fix that now. But um, little things like that. Yeah. Just would, would tend to have it under predict the amount of fertilizer you needed. Mm. especially when you went to corn. Sure. And also they were locked into using the green seeker, which would saturate. Mm. And, and so yeah. uh, you had a, a random number generator out there with an algorithm that was developed for wheat. Yep. And so there were some dissolution farmers. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> so, you know, thinking about these, these algorithms and you talked about the green seeker there, and you've mentioned that Cal Holland was, you know, partially responsible or mainly responsible for developing the crop circle sensor that came yeah. out of these early chlorophyll meters. Absolutely, right? yes, yeah. all the way. <laughs> and, and so, and so, though the crop circle sensor kind of developed into the optics sens uh, oh. sensors that are yeah. produced by Aglia, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about those? The uh, the crop circle sensor uh, was totally developed by Holland. The ARS part of it that I worked for, I'll say we were responsible for doing the field testing. Okay, and we would in the summertime we would test them here in Nebraska. In the wintertime, we would go to uh, Brazil. Huh. We had colleagues there that we would go down there for several weeks and, and further test and evaluate what's going on. The, um, the sensors have, have migrated now because of improvements in electronics. Sure. Originally, Holland sensor used a, we call it an amber LED. It was kind of an orange light that, that also had NIR in it. Mm -hmm. Well, since that time, they've come up with full range LEDs that are very white, right? contains all the wavelengths. So then the trick is to put filters in there that give you the wave bands that you want. Hmm. Sure. So, so that's what he's done with his sensors. The uh, Oklahoma sensor, the Green Seeker sensor, they operate differently in that they don't continuously monitor all the wave bands. It only has one detector. So it would monitor red for a while, and then near infrared for a while, hmm. jumping back and forth, back and forth. So hmm. it was never really monitoring the same target or plant area sure. all the time. It wasn't a lot different, but uh, just part of the design. Right. Trade-offs. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 So also speaking about some of these different sensors, can you describe like the difference between a passive and an active sensor, mm -hmm. but also like the proximal sensors that we have been talking about, but also mm -hmm. some remote sensing technologies okay. that farmers might know? Yeah. The, the passive sensors are what we started with mm -hmm. using natural sunlight. The problems we had was cloud cover, time of day, shadows, 
And then on top of that, different uh, cultivars or varieties of, of the crop. And this is when uh, Kyle Holland said, this is really a pain for you to put this standard calibration panel under the sensor. Sure. Every five minutes or something like this, mm. to, to look up at the clouds and say, yeah. <laughs> come on, get out of the way. Right. <laughs> and, and so this is when he said, um, I know how to build the electronics to separate out natural sunlight from the very small extra signal that's coming from the light that, that I would generate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it takes some really fancy electronics to do that. Right. Because yeah. it, it's taking a sample about 40,000 40, times a second. Wow. wow. I mean, it is smoking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so that's the the uh, the secret and, and why these things will work at night as well as at daytime yeah. right which is kind of fascinating it'd be nice to put that on a drone and actually have the uh, the active sensor strong enough to work <laughs> on a drone right you have to get a special license for your drone to do that <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> but they've done this with uh, tractor mounted sensors right. with, with cotton and grease yeah. huh. it works well Interesting. Yeah. And so those active sensors, you know, we work with drone imagery quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And now they have the kind of the downwelling sensors that are supposed to prevent you from having to do all of that, yeah. you know, oh, calibration yeah. all the time. So that's, um, that's helpful, except that there's still cloud cover mm -hmm. right up there that yep. the, the, uh, the angle of the sun and the clouds may not affect the sensor. Sure. But they do affect the uh, brightness of the soil, mm -hmm. right? yeah. the, the patterns on the soil. So just have to be careful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we think about how we're able to create an interface, right? We, we have these sensors that are measuring, you know, like you said, 40,000 times a second. That kind of gets distilled down, I assume, into kind of a, a one yeah. second reading that on these commercial you know, sensors get sure. used to inform a target rate. How, how are we able to integrate these sensors with complex machinery in a field to make nitrogen applications? Part of the problem is that the sensor system and the recording system has to be very high speed, but the computers in John Deere or anything else, Raven, you name it, it's pretty slow speed. Right. Kyle says they're about 286 computer speed, pretty slow. So, <laughs> yeah. so what he's had to do is to put a 50 millisecond delay in there between each signal to, to slow down his system mm -hmm. to, to send and receive to be compatible sure. with, with the other systems. Sure. There's also a lot of because it's so much data so quickly, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of jumping in the values. Is there a way to kind of even that out, um, a rolling average type of thing? Well, what, what Holland does is he uh, summarizes the data and, and for research purposes, he'll let you record it 10 times a second if you want to, mm -hmm. but you end up with boxcars full of <laughs> right. information. And so he, for fertilizer purposes, he summarizes it every one second mm -hmm. and will make a fertilizer adjustment accordingly. Sure. And in the process that takes out a lot of the, the variability, if you think about going through the field, I'll say four miles an hour, that's about six feet per second. Sure. So, so you're getting um, a picture of probably eight to 10 plants. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, thinking about the system response to how quickly some of those SI values can change is a the, good thing. Uh, the, the SI values can change. And, and one of the reasons for having more than one sensor is, is if you have three or four out there, you could actually write algorithms that take out anything that's got a standard deviation or a CV mm -hmm. that's either high or obviously low because of uh, weeds that can send it really high or a, we call it cultivator blight, so something <laughs> else missing plants Sure, <laughs> that would, would send it the other way. And, and so uh, that could give you a, a wrong fertilizer rate. But for now, 
that hasn't been done. It's just a, an average. If you have four sensors, it's going to sure. give you the average of the four. Sure. Can you talk about some of the other challenges associated with some of these measurements? So, yeah, I guess you can kind of take that whichever direction you want. But <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the problems is that that we've tried to to marry a, a high speed sensor system with a, a sprayer system that was designed for on and off operations. Mm. Sure. Am I at the end of the field or do I turn off the right boom and the left boom, this right. sort of thing? Right. And those valves, they might've been solenoid or they might've been a, a motor controlled ball valve, but it takes two, three, maybe one second, it, it's slow. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so if you're moving through the field, now farmers like to go through the field maybe at eight or 10 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. so, so now you're 15 to 20 feet down there. Per second, yeah. And, and you've got two seconds for that valve to control, you're down the field 50 feet or so, mm -hmm. well beyond. But you say, well, maybe that isn't so bad. I'm, I've got a 120 foot boom out here. That's another problem. The, the sensor is, is monitoring where it is, but they're usually not out at the extremes of the boom. Right. So I think one of the situations is that it's nice to have those big booms for spraying weeds and this sort of thing, right. but for applying fertilizer, they're probably better to drop it back to 60 feet or something like that. Sure. Hmm. Just tough from a logistics standpoint, right? As far as covering a lot of ground and trying to get to all the fields that need to be side dressed. That's right. And, and that's why we say farmers shouldn't plan to use these kind of sensors on all of their fields. They should be used on the most variable field or the fields that have had uh, grandpa put manure on, but golly, we don't know where he did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> or there was an old farmstead here. Right. Yeah. Um, feedlot, whatever. Swine barn, something like that. Yeah. You, everything like that can really, um, you can see that in the imagery for years to come. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so the, the sensor is able to pick up some of that. Yep. And so you've kind of, we've, we've talked about this real time sensing and some of the, maybe some of the benefits with the dealing with variability and then some of the challenges, right, of, of the real time yep. response yep. and the systems that we have. Can you compare that versus more passive sensors and, and, and kind of the approach to sensing that requires that you process the data and look oh. at it before you go out and make an application? There's some advantages to, to I'll say, pre-processing the data. Mm -hmm. You have to collect it first. And some of the data you could pre-process might be organic matter content, um, water holding capacity or slope of the land, mm -hmm. things that aren't going to change very much over time. Sure. But there are other types of uh, indicators, like if you have drone information mm -hmm. or, or aircraft, even satellite information, that's pretty close to being real time. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's what you'd like to process and, and get it back quickly. And, and ideally, you'd like to be able to merge that with the common sense information that the farmer has sure. from the soil. And, and this is what you can do in the computer. And then you can feed that information into a, a John Deere or Raven or some kind of controller in, in the form of a shapefile and go make your application. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, probably what you're sacrificing is the reliability of the imagery. How, how good it is if you get satellite imagery. Most of the time, it'll tell you 2% light cover of clouds, uh, right. this sort of thing. <laughs> right. And then you, a little common sense to say, this pattern looks strange out here. Mm -hmm. It's cloud up there. It's a shadow, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there tends to be kind of that trade off of we can integrate more data, but it may take more processing or a longer time versus, yeah. you know, these on the go sensors. It's kind of a plug and play, and you're out from the field and you're applying at the same time. So there's that trade off. Yeah. What we've seen is that drones have, um, allowed people to have fun and, <laughs> and, and collect data yeah. and take pictures. And, and part of the problem is it's, it's a, a challenge for them to say, 
how do we, we pick out the high nitrogen reference strip here? Mm-hmm. We've got to go in and we call it cookie cutter, trim, trim out the high nitrogen strip. It's going to take somebody to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. The other way, if you use the virtual reference strip, the uh, computer can do this for you. Mm-hmm. Sure. But you say, well, that reference value might not be right for the whole field. Mm-hmm. And, and we're pretty sure it's not. Right. But it's, it's one of these things, give and take. Yep. Sure. I think that there's a lot of potential for using remote sensing of some kind. Maybe it isn't drones because you have to pre-process or, or, or process the data, but, mm-hmm. but drones become a, a really good scouting tool mm-hmm. right? that you can fly a transect or two across the field, identify uh, sprinkler package nozzles or, or problems that c- can fix those mm-hmm. or uh, get somebody out there to look at them. Um, if you have problem areas of the field, Get your butt out there and look at it. See what, <laughs> what's causing it. It, mm-hmm. it may not yeah. be nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it could be pH or sulfur, mm-hmm. something else. Could even be compaction limiting something. Who knows? It, yeah, and open your eyes. Mm-hmm. Think about your your tillage equipment, your traffic patterns, mm-hmm. the way wagons, yeah. uh, all those kind of things. Just uh, do something that challenges you a little bit. Yeah, there's there's. There's so many given you know, <laughs> yeah. with, with sensor-based management. There's always a trade-off, right? Mm-hmm. Of trying to get everything right, and you kind of brought up the idea that the efficiency index is going to change as you go through a field. I mean, so do you, do you think this this management zone concept, whether it's the management zone indicator or adjusting for management zones with sufficiency, is kind of the next step that needs to be taken with sensor-based management to get where it needs to be? I think the next step is for for somebody to build a controller that will let the user put in two kinds of information: yeah. one from from the sensors. Or it could be a, a second shape file. Sure. Just two kinds of information, merge it together to improve the sensitivity or take into account those things that the sensor just possibly can't know about. But but that's the, the next step. And then to, to do that right, you either have to build in a management zone factor or you say, you know, we need to adjust that reference value. Sure. Be, be it come from the high nitrogen strip or from the virtual strip, that we know that the yield potential for the entire field is not the same. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. And so that's what we're trying to compensate for is to maybe you've got two or three zones in the field and you'd like to have that, that sensor be able to say, oh, we're in a different um, management zone now. We need to be changing the reference value because the yield potential just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a couple ways of doing this. One is to say, in, in the uh, Shepherd's, Holland Shepherd's algorithm, we have the um, optimum nitrogen rate in there. Well, th- that's really a farmer value. Mm-hmm. We, we put that in there to say, we want something that you're comfortable with to start with. Right, right. After the first year, you realize that you're putting on too much nitrogen. <laughs> He'll tailor sure. it down the second year. Mm-hmm. And, and sure. after a couple, three years, he's probably zeroed in pretty good about what the appropriate nitrogen rate is. Right. But uh, the other... I guess a, a different way to skin the cat is to say we're going to adjust the reference value. Sure. We're going to tinker with the management zone value. We're going to uh, play with the the optimum nitrogen rate. So there's there's right. two or three ways of getting at it. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it it'll depend on. I think um, what it comes down to is that dual controller. Sure. So for for a, a young electrical engineer. There's your target. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we have a few listening to the podcast. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
Is there anything else that you would like to see done, you know, in the near future when it comes to sensor-based nitrogen, whether that's maybe integrating weather data or integrating anything else? What's what else? I, I think that there's um, opportunities to to use models. Mm -hmm. They can look into the future with some degree of of accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, they can probably identify extreme cases, like if it's going to get dry as heck, you need to be careful here. Mm -hmm. right. or, or if you're counting on rainfall to incorporate this nitrogen into the soil, it's risk. Um, what are your chances of, of having rain yeah. within the next seven days? Yep. Things like that. And um, You can never predict the, the large catastrophic events that uh, might result in excess nitrate leaching, mm -hmm. especially on sandy soils. Yep. Um, in, in those cases, this is where drones or, or aircraft can come in and, and say, oh my gosh, we're running into trouble here. We, we had a, a major loss event. We better get out there and fix it either with a pivot right. or, or with a, a high clearance sprayer. If, if you don't have a, the entire field needs to be fixed, this may be an opportunity for the sprayer version. But if it looks like 70 or 80% of the field needs attention, mm -hmm. turn the pivot on. Sure. Which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So all this sensor technology obviously still needs some development, but it's, it has been shown to be useful, right? I mean, there, there have been a lot of studies that have shown that it makes people more efficient can be more profitable. Can, can you talk a little bit about those studies and maybe where we do see those positive effects from using sensors? The, the most positive uh, effect or, or, or the most beneficial is probably on soils that have the greatest variability. The rolling land, mm -hmm. the manured fields, yep. uh, fields that have been terraced in the past where they've done some earth moving, sure. created differences <laughs> in organic matter and, and things like that. Yeah, And so um, this is where these sensors really have uh, a good place to be used. I don't look for a, a whole lot of improvements or, or changes in the sensors, what they're monitoring. There, there's always people out there who have hyperspectral imagery and, and this sort of thing. And I say they're out there to develop a better mousetrap. <laughs> but um, in reality, we have 30 or 40 years of, of science that says we're already locked in mm -hmm. on, on what's really important. Right. And so let's figure out how to use that. Um, so I think that if you've got fertigation, you can come pretty close to spoon feeding the crop and make a, a good improvement that way, whether you, you use the sensors or, you know, there might even be ways to put sensors on a pivot as it goes around. Right. Like we talked about this 30 years ago. Sure. But the problem at the time was, uh, getting water on the leaves mm -hmm. that changes the reflectance of NIR and visible right. in opposite ways. Right. So that's a problem. <laughs> what have you seen farmers get most excited about in terms of sensor-based management? And where are we with adoption right now? The, um, the adoption is, is not very high. And it's because farmers, some of them are intimidated by the technology. Some of them don't have high clearance sprayers, and most of them do not. Sure. But at, at the same time, they only want to go into the field one time. Mm -hmm. They're looking for the easy button. Right. And they're willing to pay a little extra for that convenience of having that easy button. Nobody is after them or charging them for over-application. Right. And, and until farmers are only able to purchase, let's say, 80% of the normal fertilizer, you're not going to get their attention. Right. But the, the farmers who we work with, they have um, high clearance sprayer. And we started out by loaning them 
my set of sensors and I would ride with him. And this is on your own farm, right? Well, it, it's a farm south of Lincoln. Okay. All right. But he's also a pilot himself. He has a small airplane. Yeah. So he'd already been up and said, I'm ready for, for, for something. <laughs> sure. But uh, we put the sensors on and he's done this now for four years. And he was telling somebody last year, he said, this is worth about $50 an acre to me to be huh. able to go in and fix those spots in the field. And, and it was two years ago in 2019, we had a, a lot of extra rainfall. Yeah. Had some, some leaching going on. Sure. And he, he uh, put on quite a bit of nitrogen with the sensors, but he had excellent yields. And he'd gone up with his airplane again <laughs> and, and showed us pictures of his fields that were quite uniform sure. compared to the neighbors that looked bad. Yeah. <laughs> he says they wouldn't tell me what their yields were. Yeah. So feel free to reach out to us right. <laughs> or Dr. Shepherds with questions. Yeah. And so we always like to end our episodes with asking for a piece of advice that you want to leave our listeners with. Uh, and in this case, on the topic of nitrogen management and specifically using technology for nitrogen management. If you'd rather tell a story instead of give a piece of advice, I think we can also open up that uh, yeah. opportunity as well here. Well, uh, the, the advice is don't be complacent. Look around and, and think about that corn plant. There are um, other tests like the stock nitrate test. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, dang, I, it's late in the year. I can't do anything about it. But you can fix it for next year. Okay. Right. You can, can do something better next year. And, and the other thing is people get these yield maps and they go in a drawer. They, they don't get used efficiently mm -hmm. to understand what is driving the differences in yield. Mm -hmm. uh, farmers can also be their own little experiment station. Nothing major, but pick out a problem or two and maybe even two or three farmers get together and talk and say, you know, this is a, a common problem. Maybe we have two of those. But Let's think about who can can do this, who can do that. Right. Let's look around and, and try to understand what these systems are doing to us or how we can improve. Sure. But that takes a commitment and, and many people are afraid to say, I made a mistake. <laughs> they don't want the yeah. neighbor to know what they're doing, <laughs> good right. or bad. Right. And and so they they keep all their information very private. Sure. So it seems like there almost has to be a, a paradigm shift in terms of how we yeah. approach improving operations out there. In, in Argentina, they have a, a system that basically is no extension service. And so they have groups of farmers, maybe 10 or 12, mm. that have a little club, mm. so to speak. And so they get together once a month to talk about these things and, and share information. They will even bring in specialists to, to talk to them about this or that. Interesting. But, but they've provided the, or generated the information either among themselves or from somebody else. Sure to get this done. Almost but it brings a whole new meaning to cooperative mm -hmm. in a way. Well, I just <laughs> think about all the coffee shops across America that kind of serve that purpose for farmers. Well, that's in a way what's what's happening. Most of the coffee shops are bragging times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not, uh, I shot myself in the foot twice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or, or otherwise is, did you see that over there? <laughs> right. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. Dick Weiss, one of the former extension people here, he would go to coffee shops in the morning, Saturday mornings, <laughs> and, and talk to farmers. Mm -hmm. And one time he said to farmers, what are you going to do if you can only buy half as much fertilizer? They looked around the room at each other. Oh, that'll never happen. Well, it, it might be because some of the NRDs now are, are really cracking down on no fall fertilizer, yep. half the rate before planting, that, that sort of thing, and, and pushing people into being more uh, spoon feeding or systematic, balancing right. and synchronizing nitrogen needs with nitrogen supply.
Thank you to Dr. Jim Shepherds for joining us today on this episode of the Farm Bits Podcast. It was great to talk to him. He's been very instrumental in our research. And so it's always great to hear his stories, which is really what my favorite part was, is hearing the stories and the history behind this technology. It's not very often you get to hear, you know, from the decades ago, how it all got started and why we are where we are today. That was awesome. Yeah, so much context and he has so much experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and you really kind of heard that shine through through the interview. Um, and one of the things that I thought he said that was really poignant was that not all growers should use this on all of their acres. Uh, it's really built for those really variable fields. Um, and ultimately, adoption of this technology is kind of low and it may continue to be low until there's really kind of a motivating factor to reduce overall nitrogen applications, which is just interesting to think of in, in the overall context. Yeah, that methodology or thought behind that is so different than we've heard from a lot of other guests. And so it's always great to hear a new perspective for sure. So. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. We hope you'll listen again next week as we continue our nitrogen management series. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We'd like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect reviews of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.